I know as I ask the question what the answer is because you're a human being. So it's going to sound at first like a bit of a, well, duh, question. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Like you're an outsider, an outcast, not one on the inside. Like you're the outsider, sort of unaware of what's going on on the inside, and everyone around you seems to be in on the joke, in on the vocabulary you don't understand. Something's going on that they know about, you don't. (laughs) You ever feel like that? Yeah, of course you have, because you're a human being. We've all felt like that to various degrees and various circumstances throughout our life, throughout our lives. This happens to all of us in many different ways, in many different contexts, at school, at work, in our community, uh, perhaps in our own families. We feel that way. Perhaps in this church body, you have felt that way. There are times in our lives when we struggle with the idea that we are on the outside looking in. Like we're the odd duck. We're the odd man out. We feel like we don't belong. I found some descriptions of this that people online had been uh, talking about with this feeling of being an outcast, this dynamic of feeling like an outsider. And so I want to read some of these to you here. Just listen to a few of these. This first one's a little bit funny. I remember actually feeling this way uh, out in right field when I was a kid. This first one says, One time I felt like an outsider when I was a little kid and I started playing baseball. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I felt like they right field for about two two seasons before I understood why they were yelling at me. <clears throat> this next person says, I feel like I'm in the middle of a carousel. The world around me is moving. I'm standing still, and all I can do is watch it spin around me. Like everybody else is on track, but I'm stumbling trying to find my way to a seat, but, but all the seats are full, and I'm just sort of too short, and I'm stuck at the center. I, I, I could get off, but, but I can't because it keeps moving faster. That's what it feels like to feel like an outcast. This next person, it's a bit of an extended one, it says this. Since I was a young child, my parents never seemed to have time for me, and I generally stayed out of their way to avoid being a nuisance and getting in the middle of things. In my neighborhood and at school, I was considered different because I'm mixed race and everyone else was Caucasian. That meant I was subjected to taunts or, or just plain ignored, usually by other kids, but occasionally by adults as well. Being intelligent and, and diligent at school just seemed to make things worse. On top of that, I was intensely shy and I found it hard to mix with the friendlier people. When my parents divorced, I felt like even more of a freak because very few kids I knew also came from broken homes. This person says this, I struggle to think of a single person in my life who I can say was a true friend. I've made plenty of acquaintances, but no one I could turn to in times of trouble. Oh, sure, it's partly my fault. I'm shy, socially awkward. (laughs) I come across as just plain weird at times. And so as a result, people often just avoid me. In college, though, I would hang out with a small group of people, but I never felt close to them. And since graduation, I've lost touch. At work, I generally got on okay with my colleagues, but again, never got close to anyone and lost touch when I went to work somewhere else. The person closes by saying this, none of these people ever seemed to miss me. Ever feel like, People around you, take it or leave it if you're there, honestly. I mean, take it or leave it. 
Yeah, of course you felt that way. You're a human being. (laughs) There's some irony here. Everybody feels like an outsider. And that's just a part of life. It's just a part of being human. Theologically, we would say, listen, the world's broken. It's messed up. There's sin. No relationship is perfect. You're going to experience some of that. But, but what if But what if it were the kind of situation, and this is where we're headed to in the text here, what if it's the kind of thing where you knew you were an outcast because the people around you actually talked that way about you. They had names for that. They labeled you a certain way. They actually talked about it with you to you and and, and treated you that way. That's a whole different dynamic than just the the normal thing that everybody kind of seems to experience. There's no explaining that away. That is, you are an outcast, which is no fun. It's hurtful. It's painful. And for many people, that dynamic becomes an overwhelming feeling about who we are, about our identity, and our lack of fit with the world. We begin, if that's how we feel enough, and people talk that way about us and around us and act that way to us, we begin to feel ourselves with words that we label ourselves like failure and loser and outcast, which is to say that outcast goes from an occasional sort of description of one's feeling to a label for one's identity. This is what it's like. That's what it's like to be a Gentile. That was akin to the experience of being a non-Jew. You see, Gentile is just a a word that means non-Jew. It's the Bible word for non-Jew. And while there were exceptions to this, of course, on the whole, as we'll see today, the Jews were, uh, shall we say, less than gracious in their treatment of the Gentiles. The official teaching of most of the Jews was something that we would call very not gracious to non-Jews. You see, the official teaching of many of the Jews of Jesus' day was that they, the Jews, as the chosen people of God, they had the market on a relationship with God. In fact, the result of what Mark in our text today, and we'll look at this a little more, the result of what Mark calls the tradition of the elders, the the tradition of the elders, which is the oral traditions that guided Jewish life, the result of those was that non-Jews were excluded, functionally sort of kept at arm's length from a relationship with God. They made it more difficult than they needed it to be in a way that, that didn't actually accurately reflect the scriptures in a way that didn't accurately reflect accurately reflect the heart of God to save sinners. Now I know that sounds a little bit harsh, like maybe I'm being unfair to them, but I'm not making this up. Jesus, in fact, takes on this very dynamic in the text we just read. Look at Mark one, Mark seven one through nine, starting in there at the first verse of Mark 7. Jesus takes on the religious leaders for this very thing. Turn there with me if you're not there yet. We're going to look at this uh, for the first nine verses here, and then we'll jump into a fascinating exchange between Jesus and a Gentile. It says this, verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, when they gathered around Jesus, 
with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, meaning we're still at the end of Jesus' Galilee ministry. He's about to start about the last third of his ministry. And the official religious leaders from Jerusalem, from the mothership, had come to check out Jesus. They're trying to find something wrong with him. They're trying to discredit him. Early on in Mark, it says, they began to try to destroy him. I believe that's in Mark 3. So that dynamic is still in play here. So some of the scribes who had come from the mothership of Jerusalem They saw, verse 2, because they're looking for things with which to discredit him and his disciples, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They're peeved because the disciples uh, were not washing their hands properly, which was one of their rules, one of their unwritten uh, verbal rules for holiness. So Mark explains that dynamic here, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And here's the key part, holding to the tradition of the elders. We'll come back to this in just a second. And when they come, verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So when Mark refers here to uh, the tradition of the elders, he is referring to this unwritten, it would become written about 200 years after this, uh, this unwritten verbal uh, commentary, the commands of the Jewish leaders, and those were outside of the written words of Scripture. What's important to understand here, when we talk about the tradition of the elders, we're talking about the, the verbal, uh, unwritten commands of the Jewish leaders that were meant to guide Jewish life that were outside of the scriptures. So when Mark says in verse 3 that they were holding to the tradition of the elders, that unwritten outside of scripture, that verbal uh, unwritten commands of the elders is what he's talking about. So these Pharisees are frustrated because Jesus and the disciples aren't listening to their rules. So... So Jesus takes them on in just a second here. Listen to what the Pharisees say here. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples? I'm asking this much more kindly than they probably did. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Listen to this drop the mic moment here in verse 6. He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites he straight up calls them hypocrites as it is written he's quoting from isaiah 29 that's something jesus says when he's quoting scripture isaiah 29 13 this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me that is a serious charge jesus makes here verse 7 in vain in empty hearts do they from empty hearts do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, verse nine, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Here's why we're reading Mark seven. Here's the bottom line for our purposes here today. The result of this uh, tradition of the elders. The result of this was that from a human standpoint, at least, from a human standpoint, non-Jews were excluded from the covenant relationship with God. From Jesus' standpoint, however, the Gentiles were always meant to be included in a covenant relationship 
with God. You, you, you see, the tradition of the elders wasn't accounting for what was already in Scripture. In Genesis 12, for example, with the call of Abraham, in his covenant with Abraham, God clearly called his own people to be a blessing to all peoples on earth. That's a quote, a blessing to all peoples on earth. They were blessed for the purpose of being a blessing, not just to their own people, but to the whole earth, which is carrying on what God had said in Genesis 1 when God gives Abraham, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve, their instructions for living, which is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, the whole thing. Be fruitful and multiply for the cause of, of, of casting the seed of God's goodness around the whole earth. That was the call to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, to cast the seed of God's goodness over the whole earth. In fact, pretty explicitly in Isaiah 49.6, God says He defines the Jews as a light to the Gentiles. Their purpose had been clear from the beginning. It was the same as Adam and Eve and Abraham to spread throughout the whole world what we would today call the good news that God alone is worthy of praise and glory and that He alone brings salvation. That was clear from the beginning. But many of the Jews emphasized separation from non-Jews in a way which functionally excluded them from that covenant relationship with God. They weren't allowed to fully participate, for example. They weren't allowed to fully participate in temple worship. They weren't allowed to, to go beyond what was called the court of the Gentiles. There was this outer court. And actually, Scripture only calls it an outer court. Later on, the Jews would put names like court of the Gentiles onto it. The Gentiles weren't allowed to fully participate. And there was this outer court beyond which they were not allowed to go. So there was this five to six foot wall, in fact. It was called the dividing wall. And this dividing wall clearly meant that the Gentiles stayed out and didn't go into the inner Jewish-only parts. In fact, on that wall, there was a warning posted that said this, No man of another nation may enter within the fence and the enclosure around the temple. And it said this, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Message is pretty clear. Message is pretty clear. God is for me, not for you. Gentiles, non-Jews, you are not one of us. Did God mandate that way of dividing? Mm -mm. No. This unwritten Jewish religious tradition did. That became the way that temple worship was used. Do you hear any, any echoes of that in, your one, in one's own life? Our own practice? Sometimes we leave behind the heart of God and His commandments for our own. And so Jesus... Jesus continues uh, to be the subversive king in the next passage here. And he does something that would, be, would have been considered scandalous uh, sort of in that day. Jump down to verse 24 in Mark 7. Jesus 
is, is coming to break down that dividing wall we just talked about. And it says this, verse 24. We're going to spend some time on just this little verse here to set the scene. It says, from there, meaning from the Galilean region, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now press pause. Let's set the scene here for a bit. This is the beginning of Jesus' third year of ministry. And up to this point, Jesus has been teaching and healing among the Jews, his own people in the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, which Jesus the Messiah was meant to come first to the Jew in time, but not necessarily uh, that the Gentiles are to be left on. We'll touch on that in just a second here. Now Tyre and Sidon were Roman port cities that were well known for being both uh, prosperous and pagan. And they're listed together because they're the two largest in that whole region there. And they were both known as being very prosperous and very pagan. And the Jews considered Tyre especially to be one of the most bitter enemies. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us uh, that he sort of encapsulates some Jewish history and some Bible history and says that they are one of the bitterest, he says, enemies of the Jews. So why does Jesus go a full two days journey outside of Israel to visit pagan territory so that he can extend the goodness and glory of God to those who need to know him. He's deliberately doing something as a prophet saying, here's what God wants to do with you. So follow me to Tyre and Sidon. So that's what he's doing here. It's a deliberate kind of thing where Jesus wants to communicate God the Father's heart to include all who would follow him as Lord. Now keep reading verse 24. It says, From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, which sounds a little weird to us, but if you remember in Mark, there are crowds of people who are sort of crowding in and and trying to make Jesus king in a way that didn't fit God the Father's plan. So he's kind of trying to keep his whereabouts under wraps often so that he can continue to do ministry. So he entered a house, did not want anyone to know, but as Mark tells us, keep reading verse 24, he could not be hidden. His popularity was unavoidable. So sorry, Jesus, no downtime yet. Verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So here's this little girl. The word used there is a a little child, so probably 10 years or or fewer. Poor little girl who was uh, possessed by a demon. It's the word used in the next verse. And her desperate mom who had already probably tried everything to help her, falls down at Jesus' feet in an act of humble sort of desperation. Nothing else is working. Now, if this were your daughter, you would be doing the same kind of thing. If your daughter was tormented by what Mark here calls an unclean spirit, wouldn't you be doing the same, same thing you can, everything you can possibly do to help your kid? Of course you would. You, you'd take your daughter or your kid to the the best doctors you could. In that time, you would have done whatever the the pagan idol medicine man would have told you to do. You would have made whatever sacrifices you need to make. This woman has likely done everything she could to help her daughter, but nothing has worked. And in this act of sort of humble desperation, she falls at Jesus' feet for help. But there's a problem, at least in the face of it. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. 
She didn't have the right credentials. She is a Gentile by birth, meaning she's a socio-political outcast. She's a Gentile, meaning she's a religious outcast in a city that would be considered enemy territory for Jews. And she's a woman. For Jesus, a rabbi, to be seen speaking in public with a Gentile woman like this in enemy territory would have not only been off limits, the tradition of the elders would have considered him defiled for having done so. So, so she doesn't have the right credentials to be doing this. In, in, in the minds of those around who are watching this scene, perhaps thinking those kinds of things. And I'm not making up these kinds of things. The tradition of the elders uh, had a whole bunch of crazy things. I'll give you one little example. There was a particular strict sect of the Pharisees called the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. And they were called that because every time that they would see uh, a woman in public, they would literally cover their eyes. And so they would bump into whatever it is that they were walking into because they would have their eyes covered. And they're called the bleeding and the bruised Pharisees because they would consider their uh, bruises and their, their bleeding as marks of, of sort of piety and self-righteousness to be a bruised and bleeding Pharisee. So that's some of that context for that tradition of the elders thing. Some of you are like, I wish men would do that today. Bruised and bleeding might be better. So all the credentials are not in place for this woman to be heard by Jesus, at least on the face of it. And and that's part of what Mark's telling us here at the beginning of verse 26, where he says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. But she knows, even though she's sort of crossing these barriers, that she pushes right through and makes her request known. She begged him, verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, this is Jesus talking to her, Let the children be fed first. Let the Jews to whom I've come first, let them be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now this, this sounds a little bit like Jesus being difficult, but as Jesus knows, the Messiah, uh, being the Messiah means going to the Jews first. That is not a statement meant to exclude the Gentiles as if they don't matter. This was about Jesus going to the Jews first in terms of timing. The disciples and Jesus' followers would continue to carry on the mission past the Jews and on to the Gentiles. But Jesus is in a sort of prophetic act saying, let me show you how this is done. Let me show you how this is done, those who are going to follow me and continue this mission. I'm going to go to Tyre and Sidon. In the sight of those who accuse me, I'm going to have a conversation with a Gentile woman who does not deserve a hearing with me. I mean, you all know that, right? According to traditions, right? And so he's going to say, this is how, this is how outcasts are brought into the kingdom of God. So he says, let the children be fed first. Let the children of God, the Jews, be fed first. And then he throws out that second half of verse 27 there as a sort of test of her faith. Jesus does this a lot in his responses to people. He's challenging her to justify her request. And so in a marked turn of events here, she does exactly that in a way that surprises Jesus. She answered him using his own language. Yes, Lord. Notice she calls him Lord. 
She acknowledges it and, and knows that at least some level who he is and what he can do. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Without going into all the history of it, it's like she is saying, I know the Jews get the first, the first dibs on, on the, the best part of the meal. But you don't even need to interrupt the meal. All I want is some crumbs. All I want is some crumbs, Jesus. Just, just give me something. This was a statement that Jesus interprets as faith. As the faith that knows that he can heal and that he, he has the power from God the Father to take care of his daughter, her, her, her daughter. And so he says to her in verse 29, he says, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now this encounter of Jesus with this woman came on the heels of this major conflict, this major public conflict with the religious leaders about what makes a person in or out. Right on the heels of this issue of Jesus' followers being in or out, you have this encounter with this woman. And, and as we've talked about, Jews don't normally have any contact with Gentiles like this, especially Gentile women like this, because if they did, it would make them unclean, ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish tradition. Friends, friends. In our more salient moments, we have to admit that we as individuals and corporately, perhaps at times, even the body of Christ here has sometimes been a place that is too much like the traditions, the unwritten verbal traditions of the elders that we've read about today. We have sometimes excluded people who need to hear that there's a sacrificial lamb who loves them because they don't look like us, don't talk like us. We know well of a history that just because their ethnicity was different or their race was different. We functionally treated them like the dirty goyim non-Jews. And friends, we have, we have a Jesus who comes to be a light to those who don't know Him. In our more salient moments, we have to admit that at some level we have even contributed to being a place that excludes instead of brings sinners who are outcast into a relationship with Jesus. Friends, that's the goal. That's who we are. That's what this is. That's what you were created to be. That's why you have money in your pocket. That's why you have relationships with one another. That's why we exist. To be a people that helps others belong to Jesus. We want, we want the body of Christ here to be a place where people belong. Where they know that this is a safe place to become who God created them to be. That's why we're here. There's a great passage in Ephesians 2 where uh, Jesus plays off that dividing wall 
of hostility where um, Paul plays off that dividing wall of hostility uh, as a way of talking about what Jesus did for us. It says this. We're going to put this on screen for you here. Therefore, remember. Friends, it's sometimes important for us to remember where we were and where we came, where, what we've come from. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That, that's us. We were the Gentiles in the flesh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time... You were separated, cut off from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To be an outcast is to have no hope or future with Jesus in eternity. That's what it is like to have no hope. There are people who have no hope all around us. Jesus saw that. In this woman, do we see that in those around us? Verse 13 is super great. Two-word phrase is a great phrase in the Bible. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here's that part with the inner outer court dividing wall. For he himself, Jesus himself is our peace. He has made peace with God for us, who has made us both one, both Jew and non-Jew, has made us both one into a new family, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, we worship a God who seeks to make outcasts children in his family. That's what this is. That's who we are. God wants to make of us a people where the outcasts belong. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, in the quiet of this moment, we acknowledge that were it not for your work on our behalf, we would not know you. Were it not for a perfect sacrifice uh, that your son was the lamb for us, were it not for that, Father, we would be without hope and without you in our world. We ask, Father, that uh, you would give us the wisdom and the courage to move forward in faith in ways that break down that dividing wall that, that functionally keeps people out of relationship with you. We acknowledge, Lord, that we can only have relationship with you because of your work in us and through us and, and on our behalf. But, but Father, we want to carry on that work. We want to follow you to the cross and be sacrifices for the sake of your gospel going forward in the world, Lord. We want to follow you to that cross. We want to take it up daily so that you would be glorified. So, Father, continue to give us wisdom and faith and courage so that our lives would uh, reflect your purposes for them. Keep us ever mindful, Lord, that none of us sits in this seat because of our own goodness, our own learnedness, our own expertise our own righteousness. Indeed, Lord, what we have offered 
is not able to make up for our sins. And so, Lord, we love You. Because You gave Yourself to make up for our sins. And we ask that You continue to instruct us how to live lives that look like that. We're grateful, Lord, for this body of believers uh, from which we receive encouragement toward that end of being more like your son, Jesus. We're grateful for your word that instructs us and feeds us from day to day. We're grateful for um, a place and a people that you have gathered here so that we would continue to know how to grow to be the men and the women you created us to be, that we would be a body of believers that helps people find and follow you. We ask that you would continue that work in us. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.